we're going to go ahead and get started. Aaron's going to lead us in some worship. Uh, let me open us in a prayer. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for who you are, God. You know no matter how small we are. Like you say, where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there amongst them. And we trust in that. We trust that you're here with us. And we're pretty close to two or three. So we know that you're here. (laughs) Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for our chance to be together. God, I just pray that tonight, as we open your word, that you would make it clear to us that we would be have that we would have something to pull from it tonight, Lord, as we look through the scriptures and we think about who you are. We think about the God that you've been throughout history. Lord, thank you for the book of Revelation. It's a great book, and uh, I'm looking forward to starting it, but not yet. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all the good you've done to us. Would you continue to be with your people as we know you've promised? We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what we're going to go through tonight, I'm going to oh, I'm gonna do something you probably, my guess is you haven't heard many pastors at least admit before, but I'm not prepared for tonight. Um, I really thought I was going to start Revelation tonight, and uh, I was going to go through the first eight verses, which is traditionally known as the prologue. And uh, I've been studying this for two months, and I, I know I've said it before, but I haven't got it figured out yet, which at one, at one level vexes me that I cannot figure it out. Uh, but at another level, like I said, I'm in good company after 2,000 years. So uh, I just need a couple more weeks. So it's kind of twofold, right? It's twofold because one of the things about Revelation is the structure of the book is really integral to how you interpret it. And I just, I haven't wrap my mind around the structure of the book yet. I need more time. So until then, I don't feel like I can really start properly the series. And so I'm, I'm taking, well, like I said, it was twofold, right? That's the first reason. I need to figure out the structure or the way that I think it's structured to communicate it to you. But also, uh, spur of the moment, this is very Jeremy-esque, uh, we decided we're going to go to Disneyland next week. So we're going to do that, which is exciting. So we have this Sunday that I'll be here, and then next Sunday we're going to miss because we're going to be in Disneyland, which is awesome. Um, so we're really excited about that. Me and my family are very excited. The kids obviously are over the moon. But uh, that means two weeks I'll be gone. So tonight we're going to still stay in the topic of eschatology. We're going to look at it. But um, I'll be honest, this is something I devised about 10 minutes before this service started. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I have, like I said, I, I've been studying the, the Bible for a long time, so I don't think it'll be like a total, uh, train wreck, but we'll, we'll see, I guess. Uh, I'm excited to do this though, because I love the Bible, right? And one of the things that you may, most of you have been here for like other series I've done like this, like spiritual warfare, where it's much more theological. You're taking verses and putting them together. And that's kind of what tonight will be like. Um, I'm going to try and show you. If you remember, uh, if you were here last week, you know, you saw how convoluted, how complex the system of eschatology is. Um, Hopefully you brought your notes so you can revamp on that. Sorry, Hannah, you weren't here, so you won't have the notes. I should have printed them for you. Uh, My bad. But uh, tonight we're going to look at some of the passages that explain why it's so complex. So that's what we're going to do tonight. So then next week... 
what we're going to do, um, I, I, what I'm going to do is be on Splash Mountain. What you guys are going to do, though, is you guys are going to be here and the elders are going to lead you guys in kind of just a discussion. I said one thing that I thought would be really helpful as we go through this book would be to understand some of the questions we have some of the feelings we have, because I've found, and especially this is true of the kind of the older generation, um, we have a lot of feelings around the book of Revelation, right? It makes us feel some things. And, and I know for my mom particularly, like it brings up a lot of fear in her. Can I, uh, can I uh, reveal something about you? No, I won't. If you told me not to, I wouldn't. Okay. My mom admitted she's never read the book ever. Okay, she's read verses out of it, but never read the whole book, which was amazing to me. But I understand it because in her generation, it was just a book of fear. It was meant to like paralyze you, and it was taught that way, to paralyze you, to make you afraid of what the judgment of God was bringing, because you might fall under it, right? <laughs> yeah, you're convinced you were good. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but all that to say, there's a lot of feelings, there's a lot of questions that come up with the book. And it would, I think it would be helpful for me as we go through this book to know what some of those questions are, know what some of those feelings are, so we can address them as we go through. So next week, the elders are going to lead you guys through just a time of maybe talking about some of those things, whether it's feelings you have towards the book or just questions that you'd like to be answered, which I'm not going to openly say I'm going to answer all those questions because I probably can't. But I'd like to at least have questions we can look at as we go through the book that are pertinent to you, that mean something to you, that you would want answered. And so that's what they're going to do next week. And then I promise, I promise, by the time I'm back from Disneyland, uh, which will be the 13th of March, that week I will start Revelation. I will start 1-1 to 1-8, and we'll do it. But for now, it's a postponement of two weeks. This week, to look at some other passages to consider, and then next week, the elders are going to talk about kind of our, our questions about the book. And then I'll start it the week after that on March 13th. Okay? So that's the plan. So now you know. I've admitted. I've revealed myself, my, my hands. You've seen the hand I hold. I've also revealed my mom because I had to sell her out on that because I thought it was interesting. Uh, but we're going to read it together, Mom. You're going to read it the first time with me. Uh, I'm going to sit down. Like I said, if you've been here for one of my more, one of my more theological series, this will be uh, not new to you probably, but if you've never really been here for walking through passages with me, this is kind of be, uh, I, don't, I won't make it too Socratic style with like response kind of stuff, but I'll try and see if you guys can understand some of these things we talked about. And my hope is this will help solidify some of the systems and in, in terminology we talked about last week. So, this week is called Other Passages to Consider. Now, if you remember what we talked about last week, the first word I talked about was eschatology, which meant the study of last things. The study of last things. And it's the system in which we understand God's relationship to history, right? It's the system in which we understand how God relates to what he's done through history. Now, particularly that means the end, right? That's usually what we focus on. But actually, it's the way he relates to the whole of human history. Since the beginning of creation, how does he relate? And we talked about two different terms. 
dispensationalism, and covenantalism. I'm not going to go back through all the definitions, but we will as we go through. My point is there's many passages that talk about eschatology, and there's some very significant passages that we really kind of need to consider if we're going to have a well-rounded view of revelation, because they're going to bring up new elements and new points that you really have to think about when you interpret revelation. If, If revelation has any part of it that is a future reality, any part of it that truly speaks to the future, then these passages are going to be applicable because all these passages we're going to look at are relating to the end of things, or at least what's most likely to happen. Now, happen at the end of things. Now, to be fair, there's other interpretations of these passages too, right? But I want you to read them and see what, what they sound like. And to be fair, I have not hit all of them. I just tried to make... Ooh, hold on. Let's see who that is. Uh, it is Lathan. I knew it was Lathan. I can't answer right now, Lathan. Sorry, buddy. Um, Lathan is at his sister's funeral. Actually, that reminds me. I want to pray for him t- real quick. I know it's interrupting, but I'm going to do that. Lord, we thank you for Lathan. Thank you for his life. And we just love him. We're so grateful he's a part of our community. And I just pray, God, that you would be with him right now, that you'd bring comfort to him. I know today was a rough day for him to be at uh, two funerals, a family one and a public one for his sister. And I just pray, God, that you'd bring great comfort to his soul and bring him back to us so that we can encourage him and hug him and tell him we love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, these passages, like I said, are important to consider for your eschatology, what you're making your system. Now, there's some other passages beside these. The major ones I can think of off the top of my head are like 1 Corinthians 15 and some others that relate to, say, resurrection. And of course, resurrection is considered an end time thing, this idea that all will be resurrected. Now, we're going to look at some other resurrection passages But we're just doing a sampling of them that I wanted you to see and look at so that we can try and think about what Scripture says about eschatology, what it says about God's relation, really, to the end of things. And um, like I said, there's more passages we could look at, but I'm trying to make it reasonable. I know when I just get going, I have a tendency to do like hour and a half, two hour sermons, trying to prevent that for you. So I cut it down. We're doing five passages. And the first is significant. Okay, the first passage is Matthew 24. So we're going to read through not all of the chapter, but most of it. And if you know Matthew 24 and 25, this is traditionally called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because where do you think Jesus is when he preaches it? He's on the Mount of Olives. So it's traditionally called the Olivet Discourse. Now there is one of these passages at least one of these passages in each of the three synoptic gospels, right? So there's one in Matthew, there's one in Mark, and there's one in Luke. So each of these Olivet discourses happen. The three parallel passages are this. There's Matthew 24 and 25, which is one continuous discourse. There's Mark 13. And then Luke has it split up in two areas. Luke has it in chapter 17 and in chapter 21. So we're not going to look at all three of those. They are parallel. They each bring their own unique things to the table, but we're not going to look at all of them tonight. But know that they're parallel passages. They reflect the content of one another. We're going to look at Matthew. Uh, Matthew 24. So here's verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple 
And he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So they're looking at the temple. They're out on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel, uh, Mount of Olives faces the city, right? There's valleys on each side of Jerusalem. And each of those valleys come up and, and go to other kind of hilly, you know, mountains. They're not like we would think of mountains. They're kind of hills, but they call them mountains. And that's actually where you get all the terminology of going up to Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem is surrounded by valleys. So if you ever go to Jerusalem, you're always going up. You're always ascending, right? You're going up on a holy hill, right? That's where that imagery comes from. So the Mount of Olives actually faces the city, So if you go out on the Mount of Olives and you uh, stand there, you look and you can look at the Temple Mount and you can still do that today, right? And of course, up on the Temple Mount today would be the Dome of the Rock. So you stand there and you can see it. And so in their day, they're looking at the temple, the Herodian temple. They're standing on the Mount of Olives and looking over it. It's beautiful. It's golden. It's, it's just the height of, of Herod's power. He rebuilt this temple and made it like, made it beautiful. What, what was, you know, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, those days, they rebuilt it. But Herod has completely just made it just ornate, right? So they're looking at it and they're pointing out the temple buildings to Jesus. And here's what he has to say. He said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. Now, sometimes that confuses us because remember in John, when he talks about the destruction of temple, he alludes to his own body, right? He said when he's in the temple and he's over overturning the the money tables in John, they come to him and he talks about destroying the temple and and, and you're going to destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And John even explains it. He says he said this to talk about his body, his own body, right? He's talking about his temple, his own body. But here he's clearly talking about the temple mount because he's point, they're pointing it to him and he's looking at it and he says, there's not one stone that's going to be left upon one another. What he's alluding to is what we now know, because we can look back at history, and he's alluding to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans, remember the Jews had revolted, and the Romans came to put down the rebellion. And when they did, they absolutely decimated Jerusalem, right? Titus came in with the army, and they flattened Jerusalem, and even the temple, they completely tore down, so that what you have left of the temple, the only piece of the temple from this era that exists left is called the Western Wall, right? Sometimes it's referred to as the Wailing Wall. That's not what the Jews call it. They call it the Western Wall, because it was the Western Wall of the temple. It's all they have left, right? Which is why it's such a sacred, holy site. They still go there to pray this very day, right? It's the spot closest they can get to the Holy of Holies that's left, the Western Wall. So they still go there today. Jesus predicts this. He says to his disciples, this is all going to happen. The temple's going down. And of course, it did happen about 40-odd years after his death. And in 70 AD, it was completely destroyed. All right, let's go from there. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, 
when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the disciples are asking two questions, and they are either related or different. That's one of the interpretations we've got to make. He's saying, when will these things happen? What's the these things? Well, according to what we just read, the these things is the destruction of the temple. When will the destruction of the temple happen? They are associating, if you believe these, state, these questions are related, they're associating the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. The sign of Jesus is coming. Or you can think these two questions are not related, right? When is the temple going to be destroyed and when are you coming? When is the end of the age? But so far, if you're looking at just Matthew 24, if you remember our terminology from last last week, it looks like a preterist interpretation. Because we're associating the end of the age, we're associating Christ's coming with what event? The destruction of the temple. And what do preterists read Revelation and think the whole book is about? Judgment on the Jews for crucifying Jesus. What is their understanding of this great judgment that is coming, this final judgment? It's final judgment upon the Jews, which culminates in what? The destruction of their temple. The flattening of the old covenant era, the end of their age, the old covenant is done. And the new covenant in Christ has truly been inaugurated because the temple is destroyed. The old covenant's gone. The old covenant is mediated based on sacrifices in the temple and the holy of holies. And, and that is the old covenant. And without the temple, nothing left. New covenant has, ha- has happened when the temple is destroyed. Okay? So, so far it sounds like a preterist interpretation. That's where we're, we're reading Jesus and that's where we're sitting right now. So they ask him that question. What will, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Okay, so these things are going to happen, but we're not at the end yet. Okay, now it's starting to sound different, kind of, because at least it seems to imply these things are going to take some time, wouldn't you think? If there's going to be many false Christs, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, that sounds like a more extended period of time all of a sudden, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like 20 years, 30 years, okay? Now it sounds like there's a longer period of time that Jesus is talking about. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquake. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. These are not the true end. These are just the things that are are showing you it's starting to labor, right? Just like a woman who's pregnant. It's just the start. 
you think this is bad. Get, wait till we get to the birth, right? That's kind of the implication. These are just the beginning. Because then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Okay, so far, again, this sounds all of a sudden like a futurist interpretation, doesn't it? This sounds like there's going to be some time. This does not sound like Jesus says he's coming back in the first generation, does it? Does not sound like he says, I'm coming back, you know, in 40 years to destroy the temple. This sounds like something that's going to be a long time away. So now we're thinking, okay, well, maybe this is a futurist interpretation. Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. All right. Think back to our definitions. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like post-millennialism. Why? Well, because the gospel's got to be preached. Then the end can come. If the end is going to be associated with Christ's return, which it obviously is, and the gospel is going to be preached, well, it kind of seems it's implying that it's going to be effective. The gospel has got to be preached everywhere, and then it will, then the end can come, finally. But the end's not going to come until the gospel's been preached everywhere. That sounds like post-millennialism. This gospel is going to go out and do an effective work and then the end can come. There's no mention of a millennium anywhere here, is there, by the way? For a premillennial who believes there is a millennial reign of Christ, he just says the gospel is going to be preached and the end will come. No millennial kingdom mentioned. That sounds like post-millennial. That this era in which we live as the church, this is the millennium. And then the end's going to come, and Jesus will return. Okay. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. It's a reference to Daniel. Let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. Then there will be a great tribulation. Okay, this is talking to people in Judea. He specifically says it. People who are in Judea. This great tribulation is coming. That sounds like he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Get out of Judea. When you see that Roman army approaching, get out. Or you're done. Pray that it's not a Sabbath. Pray that it's not winter when they come. Because if you do, you're done for. 
Jerusalem is done for. Get out if you're in Judea. For then there will be a great tribulation, verse 21, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Nor ever will. Now, all of a sudden, that does not seem like it was fulfilled in the first century anymore, does it? I mean, I'm not saying the destruction in Jerusalem wasn't bad. It was awful. But it's the worst thing that's ever happened? The worst tribulation that has ever happened since the beginning of the world, nor nothing can compare that happens after it. It's been another 2,000 years. Not one thing. Not the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Not the genocide of the Jews in the Holocaust. Not anything can compare to the tribulation that happened in the first century. That does not seem right. All of a sudden, this sounds like the future again, doesn't it? But he just said he was speaking to those who are in Judea. The people who would be around when the temple's getting destroyed. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What he's saying is, when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be obvious. Don't listen when they say he's in the inner rooms. Don't listen when they say, oh, he's out there in the wilderness. Why? Because just like lightning flashes can be seen all across the sky, you'll know when he's here. It will be evident to you. Now, did that happen in the first century? Preterists would say yes, it did. It doesn't sound to me like something that happened in the first century. The coming of the Son of Man that everyone can see. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, does that sound like the first century? No way. You're going to see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, and he's going to gather all who believe in him. 
in one place. He's going to bring them to him in the sky. I know that didn't happen in the first century. This is about the end. He says so. After the tribulation of those days, the tribulation he's been talking about this whole time, all of this stuff's going to happen. Prophetic stuff. And the sign of the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus. The sign of Jesus will appear in the sky. And he's going to gather all the elect by a great trumpet. And his angels will be sent forth. And Jesus says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So whenever this great day comes, this last day, whatever the last day is, you'll know. Just like when you can look at a tree and see that the leaves are tender and the shoots are sprouting. Oh, summer's near. Those signs will be apparent to you and you'll know he's coming. That is future language. I don't care how you slice it. That is future language. That did not happen in the first century. What's Jesus' very next line? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. What? Well, maybe the preterists are right. Maybe this did all happen in the first century because Jesus says this generation will not go away until these things take place. Now, how's that for confusing? Now, I wanted you to see, I'm, I'm not going to go through, I got to save something for my Matthew series whenever I do that on 24 and 25. So I'm not going to walk you through it all. But what I will say, I'll try to give you some semblance to walk away and not just be like, okay, Jeremy just made the scripture more confusing and then sent us away. Um, you have to wrestle with both those things being present. And you've got to have a system that can put those things together. You can read that passage and say, well, everything in it must be the future. Everything has not happened yet. That is still to come. That is a prophecy. Just straight up prophecy future. You can say, no. He says that generation will not pass away. You can interpret that in a preteristic way. That has all happened. Jesus said that it would happen in that generation, and it did. This was all talk about the first generation, that first generation of the church. And it was all fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. That's the whole context of the, of the, of the whole passage. They were looking at the temple and asking, when is it going to be destroyed? And that's what a preterist would say. That's the whole point of the passage. He's telling you what's going to happen when the temple's destroyed. Or you can look at it like I do and say that both of those things are there. There are elements where Jesus is clearly talking about things that have not happened. And there are elements that are clearly about the first century. So how do you put that together? Well, in my opinion, you put it together in this way. 
the temple was an example of the final judgment. It didn't fulfill the final judgment. There's still a final judgment yet to come. These things are still to happen in the future. But that first century destruction of the temple was an example of what that final judgment will be like. They use the term typology in theological studies, typology, which is that you see shadows, you see types of things that represent a future reality. So for example, one that's very common and even referenced in the scriptures, the sacrificial system, what was that a type of? Well, according to the New Testament, it was a type of Christ, the sacrifice to come, right? What in the Old Testament was this whole sacrificial system and what it did for the people and how it made atonement for them, that was fulfilled in Jesus, which is what they usually call the fulfillment, they call the antitype. You have the type, which is kind of the, the thing that points forward, and then you have the antitype, the thing that fulfills that. So the type is the sacrificial system. It was pointing to a reality that we were still awaiting. The antitype is Jesus who fulfilled the sacrificial system. Do we still have to sacrifice in the new covenant? No, because Jesus did. He is the once for all sacrifice according to Hebrews, right? He took care of that. So the same thing could be said here in this situation. This destruction, this destruction of the temple in 70 AD is a type. It's a type relating to the end times. It's a type of the judgment that is to come, which is encapsulated fully only in what? Well, that final judgment that's still to come. So Jesus can rove back and forth between those two images. Why? Because Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. We've got to hold on to two tensions with Jesus, which is what? Yeah, he's God. He's also a man. And Jesus often functions like a prophet, just a, a man who's a prophet. And you're going to see one explicit example right here in the next verses that is so clear that Jesus is operating as a prophet in this moment. But Jesus is looking forward and he can see two events and they're overlaid on each other, which is the first century destruction of the temple and his coming, his second coming. And they relate to each other somehow. But look, how do we know Jesus is operating like a prophet? Look at these next verses. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then he says, we just looked at this. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Talking about the first generation. And then he says this, very two verses later. But of that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not even the son, but only the father. Now, who's the son? That would be Jesus. What is Jesus saying here? I don't know when this will happen. Now, Jesus, in the span of three verses, has said, this will happen all in the first generation. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. And also, I don't know when it will happen. No one knows. Only the Father. I don't even know. And I'm Jesus. 
Jesus admits something he does not know. That's proof that he's functioning like a prophet, right? He sees, but he's not seeing everything perfectly clearly. And I think those two verses put in close conjunction show us two things. What I told you, which is that one, these things were fulfilled partially in the first century, the destruction of the temple. But there's still a day and an hour yet to come. Jesus says so. I don't even know when that day is going to come. And I think for so far, that day hasn't come for 2,022 years. We're still waiting for that day. Now, my guess is Jesus knows it now, post-resurrection. But we don't. We're still waiting. Okay. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. What's that mean? What it means is in the days of Noah, everyone was just living life. It was just normal. They were getting married or giving their daughters away in marriage. They were eating and drinking and partying up till the exact moment that Noah entered the ark, and what happened? Judgment came like that. The rain started, and it was done. Jesus says, that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. You're not going to know. It's just going to happen. Everyone's just going to be living their life. And then it's going to happen. Unexpectedly. That's what the coming will be like. Now, what's that sound like? That sounds like a premillennial interpretation. That sounds like the rapture, doesn't it? Now that's what traditionally what premillennials would look to and say, here's proof of the rapture. Jesus says everything's going just normal, hunky-dory, and one day, unexpected, there's nothing that we have yet to see. It could happen any moment. Right? Which is why you know, you know you always hear about the the younger generation prank of like laying your clothes out for your parents to find, like like you just got raptured. You ever heard about people doing that? (laughs) I've heard about people doing that. Anyway, that's the point. It could happen at any moment, right? That's the belief of premillennials who are pre-trib. If you're pre-tribulation, there is not anything left to happen for the second coming. It could happen now and now and now and now. Any moment. There's nothing left to expect. It could happen any time. Okay. So Jesus says that in verse 39, verse 42. This still sounds like rapture. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore be on the alert for you do do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. No one knows. It's mysterious. And then what's chapter 25? We're not going to walk through it. I'll just tell you. Chapter 25 is then Jesus goes on to give all the parables about readiness, right? 
He goes and gives the, right after this in Matthew 25, he talks about the parable of the 10 virgins with the oil, right? You had five who were prepared and they, they, they had extra oil because they knew they might have to wait a long time for the bridegroom. And then you had five who didn't take any extra oil and they ran out. And what happens? Oh, they had to go get more oil because they ran out and they got shut out of the wedding because they weren't prepared. He goes on and tells the story of the talents, which we always separate from this context, always. When we tell the parable of the talents, we're like, this is a nice story about having spiritual gifts. No, it's a story about being left out of the kingdom. It's a story about being left out of the wedding. That's why he says, oh, at the beginning, a master, he gave talents to his servants and he went away on a long journey. And when he came back, he wanted to see what they'd produced. Of course, the man with five talents, he had five more. And the man with two talents, he had two more. And the man with one talent, well, he went and buried it. And the master comes back and says, where's my, where's my, my talent? And he says, oh, I buried it because I know you were a harsh man who reaped where he had not sown. So I buried it. And he says, you wicked servant. You could have at least put it in the bank so I'd get some interest on it. And instead, you just put it in the ground. And then he puts him outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a nice use your gifts to do glory for God or something. Like, oh, you've got five talents. You've got to use those gifts in the church. This is about being left out of the kingdom. That's where the parable of the talents shows up in Matthew. So you have all these stories. Be ready, be watchful, be prepared because the Lord is coming and you do not know when. You do not know when. Okay. Move on to 1 Thessalonians 4. There's Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25 are really significant for the rest of the New Testament, at least as it relates to eschatology because it's really the main way in which we see Jesus openly talk about the end. It's like the major discourse on it. And so Paul, when he writes on the end times, he's influenced by what Jesus has said in that, in that discourse. Because that teaching was passed on by, by Jesus' disciples, right? Because they heard him teach it. And it's probably super influential for Revelation as well. And that's why we got to hold that passage in mind as John writes Revelation. If John, the apostle, is the author of Revelation then he would have heard the Olivet Discourse. He would have been sitting at Jesus' feet and heard it. So it was impactful to him. We got to keep that in mind. Okay, we also have to think about 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's your rapture passage, right? This is the, where the word rapture comes from. Okay. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. What's he talking about sleep? I was just going to say, he's talking about my dad in the front row. No, he's not. He's talking about those who are dead. Obviously, because he's talking about grief. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. Who have no hope. Okay? Those who are asleep. I want to tell you, don't be uninformed about those who have died. Because I don't want you to grieve like the world. We have a hope. We have a hope. And the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that our hope is bodily resurrection at the return of Jesus. 
It's bodily resurrection at the return of Jesus. That's the consistent witness of the New Testament. That's our hope. So, he says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Those who don't believe that the resurrection's coming. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who have died in Jesus. Those who have died as believers. They're going to be raised too, just like Jesus was. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until his coming, the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to come before they do. Those who have died, we're not going to somehow come into the presence of Jesus prior to those who have already died. Why? Well, Paul says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first thing to happen. Then we who are alive. Now, Paul, remember, Paul, at least by all appearances, Paul thinks Jesus is going to return in his lifetime. In fact, one of the interesting things is when you read the prison epistles at the end of Paul's life, One of the things you notice is that there's this almost like realization settling in on Paul that he's actually going to die before Jesus returns. Because there was an expectation, as there always has been in the church, that Jesus' return is imminent. It It can happen in any generation. And the first... You know, the first apostles, the the first disciples of Jesus, they all thought he was coming back quickly. They thought he was going to come back in their lifetimes. They even asked that when they see the resurrected Jesus in Acts 1. Remember what's the first thing they say to him? They see the resurrected Jesus, Acts 1. He's about to be exalted up to heaven. And they say, Jesus, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's like, it's not for you to know the time set by my father but you will be my witnesses. That's where he leaves them. So they still expected that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. And like I said, every generation since has held on to the promise that Jesus would return in their lifetime. That's not a bad thing. We should hope for it. The thing that's bad is when we think we've got it figured out. Jesus, we just read in Matthew 24, no one knows the hour. Not even the sun while he was on earth. How dare we be as presumptuous to think we know? But there's a balance between not being so arrogant to think we've got it figured out and yet always hoping that it will happen. Wanting it to come quickly. Okay. So, the dead in Christ rise first, but then we who are alive and remain, those who, and by we who are alive, he's talking about anyone who's alive at Jesus' coming. Now, at the time, like I said, he thought it was him. It, it turned out it wasn't. So he's speaking about this future generation, whoever they are, that's going to be alive when Christ comes. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up. Caught up. That's the word harpazo in the, in the Greek. And that word, caught up, is the word that went from Greek into Latin as rapture. Rapture is the Latin form of the Greek word harpazo. And so when you read the text in its original form, it's Greek, but like I said, it gets translated, becomes rapture, and then it came into English through Latin. 
And that's where we get the word rapture. Caught up, snatched, seized. That's what that word means. So when you think of the rapture, this is the passage it comes from. If you ever hear someone talking about the rapture, and this is, they're like, hey, by the way, do you know where that's found in scripture? I guarantee most people who talk about the rapture could not point you to it. But now you can. 1 Thessalonians 4. Caught up, rapture. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? This is the rapture passage. This is where people start to think, okay, there's this moment that's coming when Jesus comes, we're going to be caught up who are alive. And the dead are going to be raised up. And so wherever you think the rapture happens, right, whatever your theological position, which for rapture is pre-trib, mid-trib, or pre-wrath, as I call it, or post-trib, this has to happen. The dead in Christ are are, are being raised up, and those who are alive meet him in the air. So you have to... Think about that when you think about your theological system. Whatever is being said in 1 Thessalonians 4 has to happen at the rapture, whatever that is. Which according to this is being caught up if you're alive and being resurrected if you're dead. And believe at least, right? This this is only talking about believers. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So if you believe at the rapture, whenever that time is in your system, The dead are raised, the dead believing dead are raised to life. And those who are alive and believers are caught up to be with Jesus. Okay. That's a wonderful truth. Remember, I talked about the book of Revelation being the book of comfort. It's this book that's meant to bring hope to us, bring a comfort to our souls. So I cut out verse 18. From this passage, you go 17 and there's 18. I I put it on its own slide because I love this. He's just talking about these beautiful end time realities, the resurrection of the believing dead, the, the rapture of us being with Christ. And then in verse 18, he says this, Paul says, therefore comfort one another with these words. We forget that. What Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is meant to bring us comfort. It's not supposed to scare us. It's not supposed to overwhelm us. The resurrection of the dead, the rapture, whenever that's happening, which again, people believe different things about when it will happen, but whenever it does, whatever this is pointing to, it's meant to be a comfort to us. We're meant to comfort one another with those words. Don't worry. We're going to be resurrected. Don't worry. Death has no power. Because there will come a day when you will meet Jesus face to face. We're comforting each other with that, with that truth. First Thessalonians 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Okay, where is that thief in the night language coming from? Matthew 24. Remember Jesus said that. 
the Son of Man coming will be like a thief in the night. So Paul is obviously referencing that Olivet Discourse that Jesus talked about. And so what he's talking about here, this concept, the day of the Lord, is a really, really big biblical concept. Of course, most of us are kind of uh, illiterate in the Old Testament. But if you know the Old Testament, the day of the Lord shows up all the time. Particularly through the book of the Twelve, right? What we call the Minor Prophets, the book of the Twelve. And that concept, day of the Lord, is the day of judgment and salvation. It's the day when the evil and the wicked are judged and the day when the righteous are saved, even in the midst of that judgment. In Joel 2, it's the locust swarm that comes, decimates the wicked, and yet the, the, the righteous are saved out of it. It's used, actually, for what? It's used many times. It's used for Assyria, destroying the northern kingdom. It's used for Babylon when they destroy Jerusalem. Those are day of the Lord judgments. But see, that that typology, that type we talked about, the day of the Lord, it's pointing towards something. And that's what Paul's talking about. This, this last one, this great day of the Lord, this final one, the one that truly is the antitype, the, the fulfillment of judgment and salvation, that final one. When that day of the Lord comes, it will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Okay, that sounds just like what Jesus was saying, doesn't it? Even uses the labor pains metaphor. (coughs) Excuse me. That sounds just like what Jesus was talking about. Okay? Okay. But he says what? You brethren, you brethren are not in darkness. You are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now that sounds what we call as premillennial pre-millennial, pre-trib, or pre-wrath. It sounds like he's making a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. Now, that distinction holds true for everyone, obviously. The righteous are not going to face final judgment, and the wicked will face a final, really a final damnation, according to the Bible, right? That's what's going to happen for eternal destiny. But, but Paul's making a distinction, And it sounds like the distinction is making that that day is not going to overtake us like a thief, like it would the wicked. So then the question becomes for your rapture position, if you believe that that is, uh, you know, if you're pre-millennial and you're thinking about pre-trib, pre-wrath or post-trib, pre-trib people and pre-wrath people are going to point to this and say, look, it's not going to overcome the righteous like a thief. It's going to overcome the wicked, but not the righteous. So how is that going to happen? Well, Jesus is going to take us all out of the picture. And if he takes us out of the picture, then judgment, when it's poured out on the earth, we're, we're safe from it. We're, we're not overtaken in it. Even though it will ta- overtake the wicked like a thief, it won't overtake us in that same way because we're not there. We're gone. 
We're with Jesus. We've been raptured. And a post-trib response would be, well, (laughs) yeah, he'll protect us. so It's not going to overtake us like a thief. But that also seems to imply that we're in the day. We're in that day of the Lord. He's going to protect us from it, but we're still going to be in it. It won't overtake us like a thief. It will overtake us. It will be part of our reality. We're going to have to live through that dark day. But God will be with us. He'll protect us. That would be their response. So again, this is another place. You have people approaching this passage very differently as to what it's saying. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning dead, awake, being alive, asleep, being dead, we're going to live together with him. Now again, based on your rapture position, this changes depending on what wrath means in that verse. When it says, for God has not destined us for wrath, does that mean like when we're looking at Revelation that those judgments, we're not going to be there for them? Well, the pre-trib would say, yeah, that's what it means. We're going to be gone, so we're not going to face that wrath. Well, in the pre-wrath position, they would say, well, no, the first part of it is actually not the wrath of God. (laughs) It explicitly does not say the wrath of God in the first parts of the judgment because it says it's the wrath of the Antichrist. It's actually the wrath of Satan, of the beast, of the dragon. So we're going to be gone for the last part that is called explicitly in Revelation, the wrath of God. We are going to be gone from that part. But that first part, we got to live through it. And post-trib people would say, what are you talking about? When he says the wrath of God, he's talking about final judgment. We're not, we're not subject to eternal wrath. We're not going to hell. It's not saying we're going to miss out on the tribulation. It's saying we're not going to hell. God's not destined us for eternal wrath. He's destined us for salvation, eternal salvation. But the wicked, they're destined for wrath. But we're not. So again, just on that one word, three different interpretations based on what you think it means. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Okay. So looking at this passage, one of the things that's confusing is we just read Matthew 24 and talked about 25. He said it could happen any moment. No one knew the hour. No one knew the hour. It's a total mystery. It could happen at any moment. 
2 Thessalonians 2. What are the Thessalonians worried about? They're worried that they missed out on Jesus' coming. He says, don't be worried thinking you missed out on the day of the Lord, that you missed out on that salvation that's coming for you as believers. They're worried that they missed out on it because false teachers had been teaching them, Jesus has already come. It's over. You missed it. And Paul's saying, don't be worried thinking you missed it. You didn't miss it. How do you know we didn't miss it? Well, because these things have to happen first. These things have to happen first. There has to be the apostasy, which theologically, when we use that term apostasy, it means like, a, like falling away, right? Have you ever heard of someone who's apostate? Ever heard that term used? It means they've fallen away. They, they were a believer and then they stopped believing. That's how we use it theologically. But it's actually a Greek word and it's just untranslated, which is it's always weird to me when they do that uh, in translation. But apostasy actually is just a Greek word. And, and we left it untranslated because we already have some English meaning that we attach to it. But it actually means something. And if you translate it, it just means the rebellion. So then, of course, everyone's like, okay, what is the rebellion? And that's a significant theological debate. What does this mean by the rebellion? What's it talking about? But we know, whatever the case, that the day of the Lord has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, which most people would say is this antichrist figure, right? The antichrist figure from the book of Revelation, this, this beast. This antichrist figure, until he's revealed... Like, we know the day of the Lord has not come. That's what he's saying. He's like, you don't have to worry because these things haven't happened. So we know that the day of the Lord hasn't come. Because if it had, these things would have already happened. Okay, so what's the big theological problem? Jesus just told us in Matthew 24, it could happen any moment. Well, these people believed it did happen any moment. It, in fact, it had already happened. What does Paul say to them? No, no, no. It couldn't have happened. These things haven't taken place yet. Those sound contradictory, don't they? You, it's, you can't just immediately rectify one passage saying these things have to happen first and Jesus saying it could happen any moment. So that's a theological problem. And how you answer that question, how you put those passages together, leads to a lot of different interpretations, which again is another reason why eschatology is so convoluted, why it's so complex. Because there's many different ways to answer how you're going to put those two passages together. And this is what I was telling you when I told you, so far I'm convinced that pre-wrath is where I'm at which I did not expect to end up, but that's how I ended up with this idea that Jesus' coming could happen at any moment, mixing with this passage that explicitly says these things have to happen first. And according to Revelation, these things happen well, in the midst of that great tribulation. And if these things, now I, again, people interpret this differently. I'm just telling you my opinion. If these things have to happen 
before Jesus returns, which Paul right here seems to say they do, before the day of the Lord comes, then there can't be a pre-trib rapture. Because the pre-trib rapture happens what? By nature of the name, before the tribulation. If these things happen and are part of the tribulation, the revealing of the Antichrist, the apostasy, which most people interpret to mean a major falling away from the faith by a a lot of people, right? A huge amount of people are going to fall away from the faith. That's the apostasy. And the Antichrist is going to be revealed. Those things are tribulation realities. And if they're tribulation realities and they happen before the day of the Lord, then pre-trib rapture can't be right. If believers will live to see this day, then pre-trib rapture can't be true. Now, pre-trib people are going to say they have other ways of explaining it. I'm just telling how I've interpreted it. They're going to have other ways to interpret it. <clears throat> My point is, I, and they're going to come to apostasy and man of lawlessness, and they're going to interpret them differently. But to me, that sounds like a great falling away, and that sounds like the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who's going to be revealed and call himself God. That's just like the Antichrist in Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it talks about that, that horn, the little horn who is arrogant and boastful and sets himself up in the temple, calls himself God. Same thing here. So if believers see this day, in my opinion, pre-trib rapture can't be right. So that's why I've loosened on, on my position. I think if this is happening first, before the day of the Lord, uh, now to be fair, I was post-trib before this, but this is kind of where I, where I landed now after studying this more. But there you go. So there's that passage. We have to consider that. How does that fit in? You know what restrains him, the man of lawlessness now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his own mouth and bring to an end the appear- by the appearance of his coming. Now we're talking about Jesus coming after that. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, so there's another big passage. That's important. How do we interpret that for a position of eschatology? Last one. This is going back bigger than, eschat- than uh, not than eschatology, but going up bigger than where we were with millennialism and, and those issues. Now we're looking at something that relates to dispensationalism and covenantalism. This is a really important passage. And this is why, uh, this passage specifically is why I lean dispensational. And Romans 11 is really important because it's going to talk about Romans 9 to 11 the whole passage 9 10 and 11 in Romans is about what is going on with God and the Jews how can we relate this people who had all these promises to what's going on in the New Testament when they reject their own Messiah how does that make sense 
How could the people of the promise reject the one they've waited for? That doesn't even make sense. They've waited for him for hundreds of years, for centuries. They have waited. Paul's asking that question in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's trying to explain it. So this is a very significant passage, in my opinion, for dispensationalism and covenantalism, right? Whether there is still a future for the ethnic Israel or not. And this is why I lean dispensational. Sorry. Um, let's read it. I'm going to sit down for a minute. This will be our last passage. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Who's his people? Specifically Israel right now. This is not talking about the church. This is Israel. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. This remnant is the idea that there's still a, a small select few of Israel who are still believing. They still, they found the Messiah. The apostles and the disciples and Paul, they found him. They're the remnant. says verse 6 but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace is no longer grace what then what Israel is seeking it has not obtained but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened just as it was written God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day and David says let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Okay, if I, was, if I was preaching Romans, we'd go through all these Old Testament texts. We would look at them. I don't have time to do that. But we're gonna continue on with this argument for now. I say then, he's talking about Israel still. I say then, they, Israel, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, what's their transgression? What's the thing that they just transgressed in? Rejecting their Messiah. That's their transgression. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because they rejected their Messiah, salvation can now go to the Gentiles. This is interesting. For what purpose? He says, to make them jealous. Who's they? The Jews. Salvation come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression, rejecting their Messiah, is riches for the world... 
And if their failure is riches for the Gentile, how much more will their fulfillment be? What do you think their fulfillment refers to? If their transgression is rejecting their Messiah, what is their fulfillment? It's accepting their Messiah. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul says, since I'm, a, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, my ministry, it's been great. It's a great thing. I love bringing the message of salvation to the Gentiles. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. Paul says part of the reason, who knows, maybe even the majority of the reason why he does his ministry to the Gentiles that some of the Jews might believe. That I might make them jealous to accept the one they rejected. Why? For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That sounds like a reference to resurrection. That the acceptance of the Jews will be life from the dead. It's, it's tied to resurrection. Then he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. He's saying, if you look at the, what makes the substance of something, in this case, Israel, and in this case, I think particularly he's talking about the patriarchs. If you look at the base of something, the, the, the lump of dough, if you look at the, the root, well, the root is Abraham, right? The, that's the root. If you look at the root of something, if that's holy, then the thing that comes from it must be holy also. And then he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, who's he referring to? The Jews that rejected that came out of the root. They're Israel. They came out of the root. They're from Abraham. But they were broken off because they did not believe in the Messiah. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, if you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches who are the branches again? The Jews. He says, hey, Gentiles, I know you're all being saved right now as you receive the, the Messiah. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews. Don't be arrogant that you've found salvation and they haven't. Why? Because if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but it's the root that supports you. It's their heritage. It's their promises. We've just been grafted in. You will say then, well, branches were broken off for the very purpose of me being grafted in. They were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's the point. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, 
he will not spare you either who's been grafted in. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is my, I think it's my last, oh yeah, there's my last section. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, who he's chosen, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience for what purpose? So that he might show mercy to all. I love that passage. When I read Romans 11, I think, how can you not believe there's a future for the Jews? Listen to what Paul says. He says, yeah, I'm of the elect. I I still believe I'm part of the remnant, but all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. They're still loved because of the fathers. The gifts and the calling are irrevocable. They've been disobedient now, so you can be shown mercy. And and now they're being disobedient and they're going to find mercy just like you did. They're the natural branches. They can be grafted back in. All that language points to a future for national Israel, the chosen people. Romans 11. Honestly, if you took Romans 11 out of the Bible, I could... I could probably go either way on covenantalism and dispensationalism, right? Because what covenantalism is going to say in this passage, in all passages, is this. The, the church replaced Israel. In fact, the church is what? True Israel. They would say when they read the New Testament, actually, the church has replaced Israel and they are Israel. 
So if a Jew wants to be saved, what do they need to do? Well, they need to accept their Messiah and they become part of the church, which is true Israel, new Israel, the new covenant Israel. That's how a covenantalist would understand that. I don't see any way, any way to read Romans 11 that you cannot see that he is specifically and intentionally delineating between Gentiles and Jews and that there's still a future left for the Jews to come back. To me, that is just plain on its face. Now, they would have other interpretations. I don't deny that, but I just don't see any way to deny that out of Romans 11. It is so clear. So that's why I lean towards dispensationalism. But this is another passage that you have to think about as it relates to the future. Because is that true of Israel? (laughs) Absolutely not. There is no fulfillment of this in our world today. This idea of a national future for Israel. Now, dispensationalists will typically point to the creation of the state of Israel and say, well, that was really big for this prophecy. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I do know this. The vast majority of, of, of Jews in the world are atheistic. They don't even believe in the God of the Old Testament, let alone Jesus. It's something like 7 or 8% of Jews in Israel are orthodox, meaning they believe. They believe in their ethnic religion, Judaism. But the vast majority of Jews around the world are atheistic. And of course, at one level... You know, on a human level, let me put it that way. In a very human worldly sense, you can understand that, can't you? I mean, their people have not had an easy existence. There is an immense amount of suffering that have happened in the, the history of the Jewish people. I mean, it's kind of been one thing after the other. The weight of God's choice has been very heavy upon them. Right? And I, a big reason... For their, for their atheism is directly tied to World War II, of course. Post-Holocaust, I mean, the faith of Israel just dropped off, right? There, there's this apocryphal story uh, that it was during World War II that, that, that there's these people who were related to the priestly families, they were Jewish, and, and they went out in, in a forest, and I can't remember where it was located, so my apocryphal story is even worse than in terms of me explaining it to you. But the idea was they took the keys of the temple. This is a symbolic act, right? It's, it's, in the story, it's symbolic. They took the keys of the temple. The idea of their very election, that they were God's people who served in his presence, and they went out, and this is during the Holocaust, and the, and the story goes, they went out in the forest and they threw the keys up to heaven and said, we don't want to be your people anymore. We don't want your choice anymore. Why? Well, because we see what it costs. We see the cost of being your people. I mean, man, it, it has been a rough existence. Now, the point of that story, I mean, it, it, the point, like I said, I, it's apocryphal. I don't even know that's true. But it says something. It says something about this choice. And Paul has something to say to that too, doesn't he? He says that call, it's irrevocable. There's nothing to be done about it as you were chosen by God. And what has been a partial hardening for them now will one day be reversed and they will be shown mercy. 
So when I read that, I read Romans 11, I just can't help but see a future for national Israel, for ethnic Israel. So that's why I tend to lean dispensational over covenantal. But there you have it. There's five other passages. I think it was five. Maybe it was six. Five or six other passages for us that we've gone through that you can consider as you think about your eschatology. I'm sure you guys go home and just like ponder this and write out your system of theology. Um, I know that's probably something you guys actually do. But uh, my point is, there's a lot in the Bible when it comes to theology. There's a lot of things you have to pull from a lot of different places to try and make sense of a system. And that's why these things can be so confusing, so complex. So just recognize that, you know, this, this, we, this is why one of the reasons I have so much, so much grace theologically, <laughs> because it's hard to put all these things together. You know, it's hard to make sense of all these disparate passages and pull them together into something that's coherent and something that makes sense. Now, that's a hard task. And, and people have been at it for thousands of years. So again, just like last week, I say, you know, this adventure we're embarking on together, my goal is that you guys would search the scriptures and understand them more, that you'd understand, you know, search them and maybe even form a position. But just so you know, that's, I don't need it to be my position. (laughs) I want you to think about it. I want you to contemplate these things and come to a conclusion for yourself about what you think, about what God's word says. And you can, I can promise you I'll accept you graciously no matter what it is, right? Well, I shouldn't say no matter what it is, but, you know, if you're really trying to make a biblical position, like if you come to the conclusion Christ isn't Lord, I'm probably not, not going to accept that just like open on its face. But that's my point. My point is if you're, if you're trying to do this from a place of faith, right, you're trying to be faithful to these, I understand it's hard and I will be, you know, I... I want to help you guys. I want to help you guys understand it better than you ever have. So my hope is that as we go through Revelation two weeks from now, that we'll be able to approach it from all these different viewpoints and try to see what each one has to say about it so that we can pull what we can from each of those different views. Because there's good. There's some good things to be had out of all of them. And uh, that's my goal and my hope. Okay, let me, uh, I'm actually going to have Tyler come up and pray. And then uh, we'll close it out. Okay? Love you all.